Hello, welcome to the April Finals. My name is Jay Epstein, partner at DLA Piper in Washington, D.C., and a former president of the American College of Real Estate Lawyers. The college was founded in 1978 by a group of 18 practitioners. The group set a path forward to build a national organization that would foster the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment of real estate projects. When the college was formed, there's little doubt that the practice of law was very different from what we now know today. Of course, there was no internet or email. There's also no Federal Express, UPS, DHL, or even facsimile machines for those who remember what those look like. As a result, the need to create a national network of experienced real estate lawyers was of great value as real estate developers and investors expanded their businesses around the country. At a time when national and even large regional law firms were few and far between, the early members of the college were able to find resources in key locations when clients needed assistance that they could not provide. Therefore, we will begin a series of podcasts with individuals who played an important role in both the founding of the college and the growth of the real estate legal industry to talk about their observations about the past and to share their insights for the benefit of future generations of real estate lawyers. My guest today is my good friend and partner at DLA for, for 18 years, Steve Cowan. Steve sits in San Francisco when he practiced law, and he'll we'll tell us we'll talk about that later. But let's start out, Steve, with a little bit of your early history. I, of course, know that you grew up in Washington, D.C. So tell us a little bit about what Washington was like then and some of the things you experienced um, with some of your famous colleagues at Wilson High School and others. Well, I, uh, at 12 years old, I moved from a place near the zoo on Harvard Street out to Barnaby Woods, which is maybe 10 minutes from where you live now. Right. Uh, uh, and I would go down your street maybe a thousand, two thousand times in, when I learned how to drive uh, long before you were there. So it was kind of a, an interesting quirk of fate. Uh, Washington was a sleepy town, a uh, lot of political scandals and a lot of national uh, profile. It was hot in the summer, you know, chilly in the winter, just as, as it is now. Uh, but it was, uh, the country was less cohesive in terms of uh, exchange of information, 24-hour news. So the world was, uh, even though it was the nation's capital, the world was very different then. Were schools, when you were growing up, were the schools segregated? Well, there was the 1954 Brown decision, which pushed them together. I, Wilson was one of the last to be fully integrated. Uh, it was technically to be integrated. There was no restriction on it. Uh, but there weren't that many uh, people of color living in that area that served Wilson and Deal. I didn't go to elementary school in that area, but I did go to Deal, Alice Deal on Nebraska and Wilson, uh, Nebraska and Wisconsin. And it was uh, in the 50s and it was a quiet time given what's happened in the last 70 years. And who's the most famous graduate of Wilson High School with you? I say probably Warren Buffett. Right. Uh, without much doubt. Uh, <clears throat> he's a little bit older than I am, so I didn't uh, actually cross with him. Uh, there were a number of people that went there. Uh, it was right next to WTOP. So we had a lot of interaction with the Roger Mudd and a lot of the uh, people who were luminaries in the uh, uh, television news business for a while because we were close. But it was okay. a quiet time. It's quiet. And, and were you there in 1968 with the riots or you were already, you were already gone, right? 1968, um, I was in the middle of law school. And uh, I remember driving back from Cambridge when I heard about Robert Kennedy being assassinated. Uh, so there was, a, you know, obviously Washington from 1963 was... Uh, uh, a much more, uh, not a, an equally significant time with the tragedy of the death of uh, President 
uh, John Kennedy. So there was a lot of disruption. So you left DC and started to go west to Ann Arbor. Tell, tell us about your, your education path. Well, my father was a lawyer, <coughs> bankruptcy lawyer in Washington for uh, small uh, clients basically and said, don't be a lawyer. It's very irregular and you won't like it. Nobody likes it. Uh, why don't you become a scientist? <clears throat> so I looked around. I didn't like Washington. I wanted to leave <coughs> for some other, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble talking. <clears throat> I wanted to find a different environment. I wasn't sure what that would be. And I was looking for a big school where there was a lot of rah-rah spirit, <clears throat> a major football team. You might find that hard to believe. <laughs> That's because and, uh, <clears throat> he's not a sports, sports addict like some of us are. Yeah, well, I'm not a big sports guy. But <clears throat> I thought, I looked around in Michigan, had a very good reputation, and they had an engineering school, and I like math and science. So I applied early admission, got in, and I didn't apply anywhere else. So I just never having been there, never knowing anybody who'd ever been there, uh, just uh, traveled there in September to start a whole new world all by myself. It was great. And then 45,000 of my closest friends. So it was 45,000 even back then. Even back then, yeah. Very big school. And, and did, you, did you finish at Ann Arbor and then went to Berkeley? No, I was uh, unhappy with the engineering program because it was very restrictive. I wanted to do other things. So I transferred out to the uh, Liberal Arts College and um, worked in that part for the better part of two years. And then I transferred as a junior because it was very cold. <laughs> Uh, and very isolated and very provincial. So I thought maybe it was a good idea to try something else. And a math professor suggested I go to Berkeley and I didn't know where that was or what it was. And I had heard of California, like I've heard of Laos, but I didn't know where it was out there somewhere. And I wrote and got a, uh, there was no internet. You couldn't call anybody. You had to write letters. <clears throat> I got a, uh, an application and a brochure and applied and got in. And in the uh, fall of 63, I drove my new uh, Volkswagen Bug to uh, Berkeley. And it's that the first time you went to California? The first time I'd ever, I'd been there. First time I'd ever met anybody who'd ever been there. Uh, you know, life was very isolating then. In Michigan, there were, um, it was a state school, state, partially state supported, not so much as Michigan State, but two thirds of the students were from Michigan and they had never been out of Michigan. So no, nobody was well-traveled or very few people. Uh, so I just, uh, never having been there, decided that Berkeley was a good place to go. I heard the weather was good and I loved it. And then you not only got your undergraduate degree, but you stayed there a little more. I did. I stayed there and I got an MBA at the what became the Haas School of Business and County and Finance. Uh, and then uh, applied only to two schools, one Berkeley for law school, which was just walking in and talking to the secretary. And they said, fine, you're in. And uh, Harvard, which I had visited once when I was at Michigan, thought it was too cold, but I looked at it and uh, a couple of people in my business school class went to Harvard Law School and liked it. Uh, so I applied there and went in. I didn't know Yale had a law school. Uh, I had never heard of it and uh, went there and it was a great experience. And did you have any jobs before you went to law school? Oh yeah, I worked every year since I was about seven and a half or eight. Um, and I worked for IBM while I was in business school or when I was about to go, I worked for the Pentagon. I had patronage jobs every year, worked for the bill clerk and a number of senators and uh, house members since I'm in Washington and I uh, 
new people are new people. I uh, got these patronage jobs, but uh, for the two summers, I worked for the general counsel's office of the IBM Federal Systems Division in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And that was a great experience, uh, surrounded by other lawyers who were working in a business context. And it was a very active time. IBM was a major company at that time. And it was heavily involved with a lot of federal programs. So there was a huge um, opportunity. And I also worked for the uh, Department of Defense in the Pentagon, which was an, uh, a very odd experience. Again, a summer job, but it was during the uh, beginning of the Vietnam War. So there was a lot of controversy and a lot of interesting things going on. So you're, you got a engineering um, courses, an MBA. Your father told you not to be a lawyer. Why did you go to law school? Uh, I guess he and I didn't see the world the same. Uh, I didn't want to be an engineer and law school seemed to be a good background for whatever I wanted to do, particularly in business. Uh, combining the MBA in accounting and finance and what I could do from a legal side to have both of those things. It was sufficiently early in the development of the academia that it didn't have, they didn't have joint programs that they do now. Uh, you know, JD, MBA, they, they do now that I didn't have them then. So I had to do each one separately. That's interesting yeah. because I got to Sean Pittman. One of my mentors was a I think he was in the first JD MBA program at Harvard, which must have been like 1970 or something, right around there, 68, 69. Interesting. So, yeah, well, I, I graduated in 69 and they didn't have it yet. Okay. So you graduated from Harvard and did you immediately go back to California? Well, I had a, uh, a summer job uh, as a junior with. Uh, law firm in San Francisco, Thielen Marin, it was called then. Yeah. Um, and I had interviewed on-campus interviews and got that and thought San Francisco was a nice place to go. I interviewed in New York and Washington, trying to decide where I wanted to live permanently and decided to go back to San Francisco and started with, uh, after graduating with um, Morrison Forrester, which later became MoFo. Oh, I, did, I forgot that you were part of it. Well, we can talk about all the MoFo um, alumni that um, are important in Akron and in real estate. And did you, when did you pick real estate as your, as your path forward? Well, I had started at MoFo in litigation. They had a need and I said, fine. And I uh, didn't much care for what they were doing. They were glorifying the past, in my view. Uh, they thought they were the top of the food chain by any stretch. But I, not only did I not like what I was doing, I didn't like what the senior partners were doing. I didn't see myself uh, going to court like Perry Mason. I just didn't see that as me. And um, I had an opportunity to go to a smaller firm that had broken off uh, from a bankruptcy firm. And when I joined them after about a year and a half at MoFo, uh, the guy I connected with was a real estate lawyer who had graduated from Harvard Law School. So uh, I always liked real estate. So I thought, well, why don't I try that? And we did a lot of real estate together. And I decided I found something that I really liked doing. And were you thinking at that time that you had this MBA, you'd get a couple of years maybe of experience in a law firm, and you would go on to the business side or did you sort of at that point thought you were going to become a real estate lawyer? You know, I didn't really know. I, uh, I made a decision at the end of business school not to go and make uh, a career in business alone. So I went to law school, figuring I had a better resume and I could do a variety of things. When I started being a lawyer, I wasn't sure where I was going to wind up. And I tried to get the best experience I could in the broadest area I could. And working for a law firm seemed like the right thing. Uh, real estate wasn't my only interest. I was also interested in finance law. 
and uh, did a lot of finance, not only of real estate, but of corporate finance, and spent that to transition into some major bankruptcy and workouts that weren't necessarily related to uh, real estate at all. I worked on some major cases because I had represented banks who got involved in major companies that filed bankruptcy, and then I was somehow dragged along and willingly and learned a great deal about uh, bankruptcy law in addition to uh, corporate finance and real estate. So that's and how I got started. Was that, was that firm Stiefel or was this somebody before Stiefel? Well, Stiefel was where I started and I had done a lot of work for Citibank and Citibank was just starting in California. Uh, they spun off Advanced Mortgage, which was in Detroit of all things. Uh, and that was their, they've created a company called Citicorp Real Estate Inc. But there was also a corporate facility that invested in companies like uh, ITEL and San Francisco um, Storage Technology, a whole bunch of different big names uh, in uh, the data collection field and other corporate uh, matters. And I was in the middle of that and would work with the major law firms in New York who represented these large bankruptcies, uh, different kinds and the large bankruptcies. And I got involved in that and that was terrific fun. Mattel was one of the names, spent uh, months there uh, working on Mattel and storage technology, which was a data uh, company uh, in Louisville, right outside of Denver. So I spent six months doing that. So that, that was great. Great experience. While I was Stiefel, before I uh, left them and uh, joined O'Melveny. And were you one of the early real estate lawyers at O'Melveny, or were they already building their real estate practice? Uh, O'Melveny had a pretty good real estate practice, uh, headed up uh, then by Larry Preble, uh, Dick Volpert before him. Right. And uh, it was through Acryl, oddly enough, uh, not oddly enough, but through my connections with Acryl that I had met Larry Preble and a number of other people uh, be, through my work with the American Bar Association. And uh, they were looking for somebody in San Francisco. And I had met some of the partners in deals, both on the real estate side with Preble and on the corporate banking side with a guy named Matt Kirby. And they thought that that would be a good match to uh, join their office in San Francisco. And I had joined uh, Morrison Forrester. I was the 55th lawyer. And I thought that firm was way too big. <laughs> and then we go ahead. Of course, I was the bottom person. And then you fast forward 20 years and I left a firm of about 50 lawyers uh, because I thought it was way too small. So, you know, it all depends on where you are, where the economy is, and where you are in your career as to what matters. So joining a big firm uh, in 89 of O'Melveny was a great opportunity for me to uh, engage in both real estate and um, uh, corporate finance law. So what do you think in those, and we'll, we'll Fast forward here in a minute. But what do you think in those 20 years at MoFo and Stiefel and while you were becoming, you know, a leading real estate finance restructuring type lawyer um, and obviously um, learning how to be a advisor to really significant clients like Citicorp and Bank of Nova Scotia and all those folks you represented, what sort of defined your early years and advancing up to becoming a partner that made you a good real estate lawyer? Well, I think I don't have a single formula for that or a, a quip, quip uh, by way of answer. I think it was many things. I wanted to succeed. I thought that the best way to succeed is to uh, dig in uh, substantively and become as big an expert as I could to become valuable to the clients. And so I read and talked to as, as much as I could. And whatever I had an opportunity to work on a case, I used it as an educational tool and a beginning to learn more than I was actually working on. 
and start bu- start the building blocks to make uh, a broad-based practice with substantive knowledge that you can only get with years of experience and just try to focus. And that's what I did. And real estate was very appealing to me because it's bricks and mortar, at least in concept. And uh, you can drive by a building and say, I worked on the development, the financing, the bankruptcy work has something to do with that building or shopping center, which in stocks and bonds, you know, it comes here and gone tomorrow. So I sure. thought it was a little bit more permanent. So that's what really impressed Marlene. You could drive around all those places and say you helped develop. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's right. I think that in at the end of the day, uh, it didn't really matter what field you were in. In order to be successful, you had to be heavily focused and get to know as many people as you can to uh, make it a useful um, advisor to clients and to be aware of what was going on and what changes they're going to be making in the field. So that that's a perfect segue to talk about organizations and how you got to meet people. And I know you were a founder of the California Real Estate Bar section, which we'll talk about, but, but ACRO, I think, was first in 19... 19- 78, as, as you know, fo- some folks that, I, I don't know if you knew him before Ackrell, Fred Lane and, and Go- John Ghost and Ray Potter right, were getting together in that, that fall of 78 and deciding to create something, um, as I said in the beginning, to talk about um, you know, what was an organization of, back then, the best real estate lawyers in the country. Um, and you were on that list, so tell us, a little bit about how you got connected with with the Acrol founding in 1979-1980. What actually started a little before that, I had formed the, based on the uh, American Bar Association Real Property Probate and Trust section, which I was active in for many years and went up the chairs. Um, they, I formed the California Real Property section, which of the state bar in California along the same lines of what the ABA was doing, although that was a combined real estate and probate. And during the 70s, the mid-70s, a lot of things were going on uh, in the states and federally that affected real estate. And people like John Goes, Tony Cucklin, Fred Lane, Ray Potter to a lesser extent, but certainly goes Cucklin um, and even Howard Kane was in that group. Uh, They were, some of them were active in the ABA and they wanted to form committees to go to talk to Congress representing a group of the real estate industry in the legal side and make and lobby and and express, um, try to get some control and give positive input on what was happening in the legal framework. But the ABA had very restrictive rules that prevented anybody on behalf of the ABA from taking any position without the approval of the Board of Governors, which was a long, long process. And we were observing, uh, those of us in the real estate side, that the our compatriots in the section, the uh, uh, probate and trust lawyers, had formed a college just for that purpose outside of the ABA. American College of Trialers had been doing it for years and were a very strong influence. And I think the result of all that uh, got a number of people thinking that why couldn't we do that on the real estate side? Fred Lane was a driver, John Goes and Tony Cucklin. And Tony Cucklin kept talking about nationalizing real estate Uh, And real estate has always been thought of as local. And the idea of having a national practice, which is very common now, wasn't so common then. And, uh, you know, you want to, you have a deal in New York, you go to New York lawyers. You don't use a San Francisco lawyer for a deal in in New York. Uh, It became different with uh, the merging of real estate and securities. And it all came together because there were corporate and real estate aspects and uh, national profile, but that didn't exist then. And ACRO was a way of getting people that were 
more focused on sophisticated real estate the practice it, that doesn't mean they're all in big firms there were some small firms all some corporate firms but the idea was people who are doing this kind of work how do we get them together in some kind of formalized organization with the ability to lobby um, and uh, to, to make a mark in the real estate industry, which we didn't think we could do in the ABA because it was so diluted. And uh, there were a lot of convivial times with some of the people I mentioned and a few others thinking about at ABA meetings, thinking about uh, what we could do to pull that together. Uh, I was the kid, I was much younger than uh, Tony or John Goes or Fred Lane. Uh, Fred Lane always was, uh, oddly enough, the person that John Sullivan um, from DLA worked for initially uh, at Nutter, McLennan and Fish. Very, very uh, interesting guy with a sharp, sardonic, uh, dry sense of humor. Uh, very Bostonian. And it was, uh, I guess it, the, the program hatched after many, many conversations uh, talking to various people who had done something like that in other fields. And it, the ball got rolling and we started to try to figure out what kind of criteria would be appropriate uh, to invite people. We wanted it to be just an invitation only. You couldn't sign up. You have to, and you had to give something back uh, and have a history of giving something back with either bar work or, or writing or speaking or something to advance the uh, industry, the legal real estate legal industry. And you show a history of that and you do a certain amount of specialized things in that area, then we would consider inviting you. And uh, I was useful, I think, because I had already been involved in real estate specialization as a subcommittee that I headed up in the ABA. And uh, since I was hanging around with these guys who were thinking about it, they turned to me and said, here, why don't you develop a series of criteria that we could use in developing what constitutes this uh, college uh, group uh, and how we can invite them and why we can distinguish A from B. And I had several years working on that and I tried to put something together to help the organization grow. Yes, you were the young guy in the totem pole, so they, they assigned you that task. And I, I, I read that you were the chairman of the Committee on um, Standards and Purposes. Yeah, I guess that's what they called it, yeah. But, but it's interesting what you just said. So going back to the very, very founding, the beginning of the college, the give back um, requirement that we've referred to over the years was really there at the formation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was one of the things that distinguished it from something like the ABA, because anybody who has a bar card in any state can join the ABA and pick what section they want. Doesn't mean they knew anything specifically or had any kind of sophisticated experience. They just were there. <coughs> and the real property probate and trust section had 37 or 38,000 people, many of whom practiced both areas of the law and uh, you know, may have seen real estate to buy, help somebody buy a house 20 years ago. And they were in that section. So you couldn't really sit down and talk with them about how to deal with the matters you're thinking about, how to expand uh, knowledge of sophisticated issues in real estate that you were facing with a bunch of compatriots. Uh, I mean, you could do that, but you, there were so many people it was hard to be cohesive and have a smaller college where people were actually moving ahead to give something back to the profession. However, not no specific thing, just something uh, in addition to their demonstrated expertise in a variety of fields. And real estate's actually more complicated than you might think if you think about it, because we have different people in different fields and land use and finance that have, have no idea what each other does. Might as well be securities and probate and trust. I mean, they're just nothing to do with each other, but they're all in the real estate umbrella. And my job was to organize that in some cohesive fashion 
which I tried to do, uh, but it was an ongoing working process that never really got completed. Well, it's been an ongoing working process for 45 years. I mean, it has yeah, no, I always no, under it, it, I mean, the, other, the other interesting thing that you mentioned from the founding is, and, and this doesn't come across as you read that the 10 year history paper, that in addition to wanting to pull together this group of people doing sophisticated transactions to learn from each other and, and, and talk about those things, you mentioned the lobbying piece, which was harder to do inside the ABA. And I assume that in part because it was at a time when HUD was issuing lots of regulations, the SBA may have been doing that and that kind of stuff. So was that always at those early meetings that was part, and of course I see the first speaker. Do you remember who the speaker was in Arlington, Virginia, when you met in Virginia? I read about it, I didn't remember it. So the outside speaker was a woman, Jane McGrew, the general counsel of HUD. So at the very first meeting, whoever- Any relation to Caitlin McGrew? <laughs> I thought, we thought about that. Um, we'll have to check into that, but, but was there then a component of the meetings and discussions was focused on federal issue lobbying or, or making your voice heard? Oh, absolutely. I mentioned that before, that the frustration came about, one, the conviviality of uh, people who were focused on sophisticated real estate deals and they were working on, they want to talk to other people. How do you bring them together? And in the umbrella of the, there were various state organizations but that didn't enable California, New York, Texas, Arizona, all those people to come together. You could find them in a sea of thousands of people in the ABA, but it would be a more difficult operation. So that was part of it. But the, there's no question in my mind, the instigation, the principal instigation of forming the college uh, was the success of others like the trial lawyers, and uh, what was then ACTEC or ACPC, American College of Probate Council. We were close to them in the ABA. Uh, and they were able to lobby uh, principally on the federal level, but not exclusively. And we couldn't do that in the ABA. So I think that not as a practical matter. So I think the lobbying and the interaction with the federal regulators and lawmakers was really what started was the major push from Fred Lane, Tony Cucklin, John Goes, uh, Howard Kane, those people. Interesting. Well, Kevin Shepard will like hearing about that since he carried that forward on the gatekeepers, um, you know, legislation several years ago and testified on, on the Hill. Um, but so, so let's so you, so you guys get this thing going, guys. Back then, there are some early women who hopefully we'll talk to. Um, there are women. And you get this this organization going, meeting looks like twice a year, like we've done since then. Um, and you go back to your practice. So, how did it help you be a better real estate? Well, I think the early organization when we were trying to figure out what to, what we were all about, we said that there are enough um, organizations that produce papers and and presentations, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to be more of a social organization of professionals that would have private conversations amongst the members of various matters they're working on, just like doctors talk when they're in the same specialty. Uh, lawyers do that a lot. And we thought that would be a good opportunity. It's only over time, several years, that we created a newsletter and that we uh, actually had programs. I think I did the second program, oddly enough, on bankruptcy. And I had uh, Harvey Miller and uh, Russ Johnson and a lot of people who were leading uh, uh, bankruptcy practitioners to talk about how bankruptcy impacted uh, real estate and what you should do in the documentation stage. And I think that we thought as soon as we had formed this, and we're reaching out to the best practitioners we knew. And it was kind of a game we played because you couldn't call up a Jay Epstein and say, hey, I understand you're a great lawyer. I hear about you all over. Would you like to join? You, it, you had to find out about the person 
through third parties to make sure that they were the right material and the right background and the right personality and the right give back uh, and then see if they were interested and then you would invite them. There was that whole charade of uh, trying to get that to work effectively to try to be exclusive, but not to the point of exclusion, exclusive only to the point of getting serious practitioners who were important in the field to be together. Uh, and it was open to everybody if they had those, could satisfy those criteria. There was no, uh, no desire to say, I belong to this club and you don't. Uh, quite the contrary. It's, we tried to be as diverse as we could and continue to try to uh, develop that and make sure that we're represented in uh, you know, every way with lawyers across the country. So it's interesting to hear that the ABA real estate, you know, probate section was the, the, the initial sort of gathering place for people around the country. Um, and then, then you, you, the group formed ACRO and, and there's other things we could talk about, but just stay on ACRO. Did you then, at ACRO, the ACRO membership, did that then become your primary source both for refer, you know, when you needed help across the country, when you had questions, I mean, how did that, that evolve? Well, in the beginning, there were a very limited number of people. I think uh, from the 18 people in the beginning, there were then 30 in the initial class. Maybe there were 48, but only 33 showed up, something like right. that for the first physical meeting. And it was a lot of organization in the beginning of, you know, who are we and what do we want to be and how do we get there? Uh, so the idea of the uses of the organization for referrals, for, um, uh, I guess, use in the cases, because more and more national deals and portfolio deals were coming along. And lawyers, as you and I have dealt with over the years, well, I'll, I'll be working on a case and I need lawyers in four states that my firm doesn't have anybody there. So I needed to figure out how to go, but we didn't have a Facebook. It wasn't something that was developed and it was only your personal knowledge of these various limited number of people and it had a, a much more restricted use. Over time, of course, developing the Facebook and having committees and producing papers and presentations got us to know each other much better. And we were able to introduce clients to each other and in some cases, people found jobs, I did, uh, with contacts they met through ACRO and other organizations. But ACRO was an important one because it, it, it had this real estate focus and it was uh, consisted of a lot of experienced practitioners who do the same type of work for si similar clients. And in that way, we could do, uh, preserve not only our social uh, opportunities, but our professional advancement by understanding and educating ourselves, because law, as everybody knows, is constantly learning. And uh, you learn a lot by uh, producing a lot of panels. Uh, and Bill Dunn was one of the early pushers of uh, having more and more programs. And uh, we were very all very supportive, it seemed, harsh in the beginning because it added to everybody's workload. They were already very busy and to do more panels seems, seemed an, the antithesis of what we were trying to accomplish. But in the end, it's still part of what you do as lawyers. You seek education and you seek service, client service and service to the profession and to a certain extent, the community and all those things came together as the organization uh, of ACRO in any case developed. So, so fast forward then, um, you know, to the I mean, 2004 and five when I met you or around that time when, you know, there's, there are national law firms, there's people building out national law firms like we, national practices, like we were doing, we surely weren't the only one uh, back then. Um, and the clients were, you know, and the companies that we all wanted to represent were at, at, at that point national in scope. And of course, on the verge of going international and global in scope. Um, so the, 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 the need 
to hire lawyers in lots of states is satisfied inside law firms at that point at, at DLA, at Morton Rose, at O'Melveny, at, 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 at Holland and Knight, at Greenberg Charter, get lots of good law firms that have offices scattered across the country. What, what then, what role does ACRIL then play in the you know, last 20 years and the next 20 years when there are national law firms um, um, and large regional good firms as, as well, but you know, the Venables and the Ballards, which grew from regionals to nationals. What, what role does ACRIL play now? Well, I think it's, uh, again, more is better. Even if you have a national firm with offices in Des Moines and Tampa, uh, you may not have the people that are appropriate for a particular job. And uh, to say that I'm in an organization and a firm that has 500 people in the US, that doesn't mean that I've cornered the market. There are many, many other people in the that uh, practice real estate law in a sophisticated way in other firms. And rather than keep it within the same firm, knowing more people in more places can help both you develop, can help the profession develop, can lead to contacts that enable you to serve your clients better uh, and can give you an opportunity to serve other people's clients. And you could do that a lot more effectively as a supplement, not as a replacement, but as a significant supplement to what any specific single firm could do. And I believe it still serves that function. Okay. That so makes what, sense? Yeah, for sure. What, what, would, what advice would you give? Yeah, we've worked really hard, quite successful, I believe, in attracting younger ACRO fellows the last five years. And, and average age has gone down each year. It's been a great thing. We've increased our, 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 our women um, our members and all, all good things. What would, advice would you give younger ACRO members on the you know, best way to use ACRO to their advantage and, and, and how to grow their practice? Remembering by definition, and I think, I think this was in the first set of standards you did, it was you had to be practicing for 10 years. So yes. it's not... We're not talking about what would you tell a first-year associate, a fifth-year associate. These are young and rising partners um, in, 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 you know, all kinds of large firms, large, large firms. I, I, I'm at, at, at the ACRO meeting in Montreal, I think. I, I met somebody from John Hasty's firm. Um, so we've got people, thankfully, from all over the country in all kinds of types and all sizes of, of firms. So what would your advice to those people be for how to, you know, use both the ACRO platform and, and, and just their general um, development in, the, in that phase of their career, which is obviously very important. Well, usually people that are coming up that have practiced for 10 plus years are fairly busy in their practice and in various state organizations and other organizations as well. ACRO is an opportunity to leverage that, that if you are aggressive in terms of joining different committees and groups, going to the meetings, uh, presumably pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, where it's in person, uh, you get to meet a lot of people, make it your business to meet a lot of people, find mentors that can introduce you to other people that you wouldn't just walk up to and say, hi, my name is Jay Epstein, who the hell are you? Uh, I have this great practice in Des Moines, what do you do? I mean, it's awkward in that way, but in the usual form of, you know, X, X knows Y and Z, you talk to X and you get referrals just in terms of like dating sites. You get to meet more and more people. You get to know what their practice is and you make a note of that and keep a record of it. Uh, which, Jay, you did for years. You knew people in every location in Acral, uh, and people would call you as they did me to say, I have a, I need a lawyer in not, not Illinois, but uh, North Carolina or Alabama. How do we go about finding them? And I see the name in the Acral Facebook, but I don't know one from the other. Do you? And chances are you might know them because they're either officers in ACRO or they were on this committee and you met them in this context. 
And again, it's not just shaking hands and having a drink. It's working on substantive issues uh, and dealing with panels and learning what other people know and how they know it and how you can advance your knowledge because you can leverage everything you know uh, in a dramatic fashion with other sophisticated practitioners all over the country with an organization as strong as Acrolis. That's my... Well, I, I, I agree with that. I, and I would, you've heard me observe this. I, I, I believe that the success of the group that we, that we formed um, at, at the law firm, um, a large part of the success, I used to say this to people when we brought in you and Elliot and Carol and Mike Meyer and um, Phil Weller, and all those people knew each other before we worked together through the college. And the college became the glue um, in the ease of, of bringing that group together and making it so successful. But um, enough on that. So let, let's just, in the closing minutes here, talk a little bit about your, your observations about how the practice of law has changed um, over the last 10 years, 15 years, and what you see for the next, looking forward for the next five years. Well, it's, it's hard for me to pick any specific thing. There's no question that law firms have changed. The practice of law in general has changed. It's become much less of a convivial group of a few people. It's a, more of a corporate environment where economics rule the day, uh, either because the clients are very interested in economics and quality. How do they get the best bang for their buck. Uh, and accordingly, the investments are much more sophisticated and broad-based and often security-oriented. The uh, evolution of REITs, <clears throat> the securities aspects of how you marry uh, real estate with the securities um, laws and the securities organizations. So you trade securities, not real property. Uh, and you have various numbers of alternatives that you can utilize to get an investment profile in real estate. You have to have skills that are much broader than you used to, to do real estate. Now, when you do real estate in a sophisticated way, you do a lot of securities, <clears throat> a lot of regulatory work, a lot of various other things that one person doesn't know everything. So you need much more of a group to do it. And that could be a group in a firm and a group in a company and an organization like Acro. All that can be worked together. So I think the, <clears throat> the, the practice of law and the profile of what you do from day to day, given the internet, uh, email, uh, and all the other social media aspects has changed so dramatically and it will continue to do so. And I think that people who absorb that and take advantage and leverage it will do better going forward in the future. So I think it's more of the same. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you two, two last questions. Um, <laughs> a little bit okay. off of ACRO and, and, and pure legal profession. As you're sitting here today and reflecting on this amazing career that, that you've had and the good fortune that I had to be with you for for a significant chunk of it over almost 20 years. What would you tell your 25 year old self? <laughs> uh, just go at it stronger and harder than you're doing. Uh, get to know more people, uh, get involved in as many different activities as you can. Uh, you'll help your career, you'll help more clients, you'll find more fulfillment. Uh, you cannot be in a corner just being a good lawyer. That used to work. People would come to you because they hear you're a good lawyer. Uh, I think that has changed dramatically over the, not the last five years, but the last 40 years, that uh, you are most effective as a consigliore or a, uh, an advisor to a client, particularly a national client, if you know more things about more topics and you know 
how to get a hold of experts that know more than you that you can team up with in your firm and outside your firm. And I would have told my 25 year old self, recognize that's what the world is coming to get busy and, and pedal faster. Very well. I, I don't think anybody could pedal faster as hard as you did over your career. Um, but, um, and of course, that advice, which I agree with, is in many ways, I think, harder today because we put so much pressure on young lawyers to specialize and pick groups early, um, where we got the chance to do other things. So lots of challenges with that. Um, so my last question would be, if you could choose a profession other than being a lawyer, what would you have done? Well, I, I might have uh, chosen investment banking. That seems to be quite rewarding. Uh, I don't think I would have been a broker. Uh, you know, so much of it is luck and uh, so much of it is where you happen to be at the right place at the right time. Get the best skills you can and find a location of how you can apply those skills with people that you love and respect. I don't know about love, but you love, you respect, and you enjoy working with, and that will give you the best result. And you know, nothing more I can say. Try as hard as you can for as long as you can. Okay, well, you succeeded on that, that's for sure. So this has been a great conversation. I could ask you, and I have lots more questions that I'd love to ask you and get, get on, on tape, but I, I, I think we should stop for here. Maybe we'll do a, a, a Steve Cowan interview 2.0, but thank you, Steve, for taking the no, I think you have plenty of other people who have much more interesting stories than I do. Well, I don't know if they're more interesting, but they are your friends and colleagues and that we're all lucky enough in my generation to have served up on what you, what you guys did for us in Acro and otherwise. So thank you very much. Um, and uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how we um, move forward with our Acro Live. Um, and, uh, Acro Sounds like a great idea and I wish you the best. Great, thank you. Thank you, bye-bye.